Our readings this morning are going to be read by Mr. Palmer. We have a recording of him with doing these readings. So, Andrew, take it away. You'll remember Amy Lowell's poem, The Lamp of Life. But I thought perhaps this morning you hear it over again. Always we are following a light. Always the light recedes. With groping hands we stretch toward this glory, while the lands we journey through are hidden from our sight, dim and mysterious, folded deep in night. We care not. All our utmost need demands is but the light, the light. So still it stands, surely our own, if we exert our might. Fool, never canst thou grasp this fleeting gleam. Its glowing flame would die if it were caught. Its value is that it doth always seem but just a little farther on. Distraught, but lighted ever onward, we are brought upon our way unknowing in a dream. Well, at least once a year, I like to bring you this parable of Khalil Gibran's. Those of you who have, heard it, who have heard it many times before, well, what shall I say? Like Preston Bradley once said to me, you can stand it once again, because it's a good parable. And if I have read it 30 or 40 times, I'm sure that uh, you probably can stand to hear it read once again. It's called Knowledge and Half-Knowledge. Four frogs sat upon a log that lay floating on the edge of the river. Suddenly the log was caught by the current and swept slowly down the stream. The frogs were delighted and absorbed, for never before had they sailed. At length the first frog spoke and said, This is indeed a most marvelous log. It moves as if alive. No such log was ever known before. Then the second frog spoke said, Nay, my friend, the log is like all other logs and does not move. It is the river that is walking to the sea and carries us and the log with it. Then the third frog spoke and said, It is neither the log nor the river that moves. The moving is in our thinking, for without thought nothing moves. And the three frogs began to wrangle about what was really moving. The quarrel grew hotter and louder, but they could not agree. Then they turned to the fourth frog, who up to this time had been listening attentively but holding his peace, and they asked his opinion. And the fourth frog said, Each of you is right, and none of you is wrong. The moving is in the log and the water, and our thinking also. And the three frogs became very angry, for none of them was willing to admit that his was not the whole truth, and that the other two were not wholly wrong. 
Then the strange thing happened. The three frogs got together and pushed the fourth frog off the log into the river. <laughs> and let us sing. Please rise in spirit or in body and join me in singing Be Glad, O oh Man. This is the hymn where the words were composed by Mr. Palmer. Reinhold Niebuhr was one of the most important Christian theologians of the 20th century. He was a very big deal in the small world of theology. <laughs> he taught at the seminary that I attended long before I got there, and by the time I arrived, one of the streets that bordered campus had been named for him, had been named Reinhold Niebuhr Place. And I remember going through quite a few envelopes getting my application in order because I kept misspelling his name. But before he was famous in his circle of academia, before a street was named after him, before aspiring ministers had to struggle to get his name right on those envelopes, he was the pastor at a small church in Detroit. He kept a journal then and later published portions of it as the wonderfully titled book, Leaves from the Notebook of a Tamed Cynic. And in one entry from 1927, he writes, 
talk today at the open forum, which meets every Sunday afternoon in the high school, the lunatic fringe of the city congregates there, in addition to many sensible people. The question period in such meetings is unfortunately monopolized to a great extent by the foolish ones, though not always. Today, one old gentleman wanted to know when I thought the Lord would come again, while a young fellow spoke about volubly on communism and ended by challenging me to admit that all religion is fantasy. Between those two, you have the story of the tragic state of religion in modern life. One half of the world seems to believe that every poetic symbol with which religion must deal is an exact definition of a concrete historical fact. The other half, having learned that this is not the case, can come to no other conclusion but that all religion is based upon fantasy. Fundamentalists have at least one characteristic in common with most scientists, he continues. Neither can understand that poetic and religious imagination has a way of arriving at truth by giving a clue to the total meaning of things without being in any sense an analytic description of detailed facts. The fundamentalists insist that religion is science and thus they prompt those who know it is not to declare that all religious truth is contrary to scientific fact. How can an age which is so devoid of poetic imagination as ours be truly religious? That is a powerful question. How can an age which is so devoid of poetic imagination be truly religious? This question is even more timely now as there are new and novel fundamentalisms beyond what Niebuhr could have anticipated in 1927. How do we hold the tension between ways of knowing, the tension and occasional contradiction between the poetic and the religious imaginations and scientific facts? Much of this comes down to how do we know that truth is true? How do we arrive at the truth that gives a clue to the total meaning of things that isn't detailed analytic fact? What speaks authoritatively in our hearts and in our minds about religious truth? Mr. Palmer has words to share about this, and you will hear them in a moment, but before he does, there's some context that's important to understand exactly what he's saying. In this part of his sermon from 61 years ago, Mr. Palmer uses two terms of art in Christian theology that have specific meanings, orthodox and liberal. Mr. Palmer is not referring to the Russian or Greek or Ethiopian Orthodox traditions. He's using the word Orthodox roughly as a synonym for traditional. The traditional teachings of Christianity are Orthodoxy with a small o. And the word liberal. Liberal has so many uses in economics and politics and in religion. And it's easy to conflate them, but, but they're different. So in theology, liberal is about how we do theology about how we come to truth. Liberal Christian theologies use methods like historical scholarship and textual criticism to understand the Bible, which they believe was written by different authors at different times in different circumstances. Liberal theology is also informed by the teachings of science. We are inheritors of that liberal Christian tradition. 
In the era we were revisiting today, theological arguments between the orthodox and the liberal and their various subgroups dominated religious scholarship. Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian I mentioned earlier, was part of those fights. So now, Andrew, can you please play the clip? Is this truth to be judged on the authority of the church, of a book, or personal mystical experience, or is this authority to be judged by the individual on the basis of evidence that appeals to his reason? How are you going to, what are you going to put up as an authority? Well, a great mass of the Orthodox Christians put the church up as an authority. The church determines what is true, and it becomes the truth, not a truth, the truth, and it's accepted. And woe unto you if you don't accept it. Another group of Christians don't like the church as an authority, and they put up the Bible. And there they get into immense amount of difficulty because there are many things said in the Bible. There are other Christians who put up the, as an authority in their lives a certain mystical experience. And let's not deny the validity of mystical experience. We don't know. The individual listens to the monitions of conscience or the voice of the Lord, as you may wish to put it. And that becomes the authority. And that's a smaller group in among the religionists of the world. On the other hand, the liberal, I think generally, insists that there's only one authority, and that is the authority of evidence as judged by the intelligence of the person, and that eventually it all comes back to that. As soon as you have to make a choice between what is true and what is not true in the Bible, it's your intelligence that makes the choice. As soon as you decide whether you're going to accept what the church says, and when you accept it, it's your intelligence that makes the choice. You say you'd rather trust the church than other types of evidence. The liberal insists that the individual's intelligence is the final authority, and he judges the evidence as is turned in. We give authority to evidence as judged by our intelligence. We did that then, and we continue to do that now. That is how we formulate our truth. And the evidence that we judge worthy takes many forms. It's scientific truth, it's personal experience, it's mystical experience. We value, depending on the person, wisdom traditions and texts that we consider holy or wise. We value religious wisdom from many sources, which is why we have this quilt up here that has beautiful symbols of many traditions. As modern Unitarian Universalists, we have a statement of the sources of truth in our tradition enshrined in the bylaws of the Unitarian Universalist Association. In the era we're recreating today, the Unitarian Universalist Association was still six years in the future. Mr. Palmer and the people of People's Church in 1955 were Unitarians, not Unitarian Universalists. 
They did not have the same statement of sources, but we do now, and it challenges us to cast a wide net in our search for truth. It reads, The living tradition which we share draws from many sources. Direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. Words and deeds of prophetic women and men who challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life. Jewish and Christian teachings, which call us to respond to God's love by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. Spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. It continues, grateful for the religious pluralism which which enriches and ennobles our faith, we are inspired to deepen our understanding and expand our vision. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, promising one another our mutual trust and support. It's important for us to remember that we have so very many sources of truth in our tradition, and we get to use our own intelligence to judge what is most worthy. This does not mean that every single one of us uses each of the six sources, but we as a congregation, as a whole, and as a tradition, affirm all six. As we think about belief, about the nature of truth, about which evidence is judgeworthy, it is important to think about how we know what we know. The fancy philosophical word for this is epistemology. So feel free to throw that around when you want to impress people. How do you know what you know? Perhaps by observation. We know the weather because we can look through the windows or go outside and feel the rain or the sun or the snow. We know some things because we trust the experts. In one of my favorite novels, a character says she believes in quarks and God because people whose business it is to know about quantum physics or religion tell me they have good reason to believe that quarks and God exist. And they tell me that if I wanted to devote my life to learning what they've learned, I'd find quarks and God just like they did. Those physicists and theologians know what they know through different means. The physicist learns through the scientific method, through observation, measurement, and experiment, and formulating, testing, and modifying hypotheses. The theologian learns from tradition, scripture, revelation, reason, and experience. And those are not all of the ways of knowing. How do you know if you're in love? You can't observe it, really. You can't trust the experts. The scientific method won't get you very far when it comes to matters of the heart. Perhaps you can rely on previous experiences of love, but who's to say those are reliable comparisons? You know, if. You know if you're in love in very different ways than you know about the weather or quarks, but you know it nonetheless. 
You know it in your heart and in your bones. And sometimes this love might be the only thing you know for sure. Our sources of truth, the authority we give evidence judged by our intelligence are varied, as are the truths we come to. Our devotion to truth and the search for truth is one of the most powerful things about People's Church then and now. It can also be challenging to hold together as one congregation when each person holds tightly to different truths. It can be a challenge to be a place of support, community, and inspiration for atheists and agnostics, Christians and Jews, Buddhists and pagans, seekers and mystics, those who don't, and those who don't quite know what the right word is for what they believe. This is also a challenge in our wider world as we interact with friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, and others with fundamentally different belief systems. To that end, I offer you a parable. A parable that builds on the poem by Amy Lowell that we heard earlier about how we are always seeking the light. The parable is from developmental psychologist Robert Keegan, and he writes, If five lamps are lit in a large living room, how many sources of light are there? We might say there are five sources of light. Perhaps the maker of each lamp genuinely committed to bringing us into the light will be partial to his own and bid us to come to that source. Or at best, some generous spirit of collective relativism may prevail and the lamp makers may concede that there is a benefit to our being exposed to each of the lamps, each separate source having little to do with the other, except that, like food groups in a well-balanced diet, each has a partial contribution to make to a well-rounded beneficial whole. But quite a different answer to the question of how many sources of light there are in the room is possible, namely that there is only one source. All five lamps work because they are plugged into sockets drawing power from the home's electrical system. In this view, each lamp is neither a contender for the best source of light nor mere part of a whole. And if the lamp maker's mission is not first of all to bring us into the light of his particular lamp, but to bring us to the light of this single source, then he can delight equally in the way his particular lamp makes use of the source and in the way other lamps he would never think to create do also. His relationship to the other lamp makers is neither rivalrous nor laissez-faire, but co-conspiratorial. The lamp makers breathe together. May we as a church be a gathering of hundreds of co-conspiratorial lamp makers, breathing together as we seek the truth. May we see the ultimate truth that is reflected in one another's lamps. Who's to say that everyone who seeks with integrity, care, and thought, who tests their truths against the world as they see it, and the worthy evidence as judged by their intelligence, isn't crafting a lamp that reflects some portion of that ultimate light, some portion of that ultimate truth? Believing that helps me to serve you all and find joy in our congregation. It helps me find meaning and joy in our religiously diverse world. Perhaps it will help you too. And in saying this, it's important for me to say that I don't believe that every religion is ultimately the same. I think 
the world's wisdom traditions ask different questions, provide different answers, and have contradictions between them. But it is a statement of faith for me that with enough perspective, a perspective that I don't think any of us as humans can have, there is a hidden wholeness. There is a single electrical grid. And I don't know what that looks like, and there's no way I can prove that to any of you, but it is the truth that helps me live with integrity and respect in this world. And, you know, occasionally gets me thrown into a river, but so it goes. And so why do we seek the truth? Why do so many of us engage in spiritual practices or come here on Sundays in search of truth and inspiration? This work is not for the faint of heart. It's not an easy task, but it is a worthy task. And the nature of truth is such that when we are devoted to knowing the truth, we are better people. Knowing the truth and seeking the truth sets us free. Again, Mr. Palmer has some words to share with us on this. An interesting quotation that I, in The Watchers of the Sky by Henry Noyes, in which Sir Henry Wilton said to Kepler, Kepler, have you not heard how 1,500 years ago men had eyes and would not see? Eyes quickly close when souls prefer the dark. And where there is no devotion to truth, there is darkness and superstition. But where this devotion to truth does exist, abstract Impossible to describe whatever we may say about truth, but where this devotion to truth does exist, it produces two or three things which I think are rather marvelous. Sincerity, frank, open honesty, humility, humility such as we find in Sir Isaac Newton. You may say that there are times when he wasn't so humble. But he was informed by some of his uh, fellow scientists that his whole system was being disproven by newfound evidence. And this was his answer. It may be so. There's no arguing against facts and experiments. And then long toward the close of his life, he said, I know not how my work may seem to others, but to myself, I seem a child that, wandering all day long upon the seashore, gathers here a shell and there a pebble colored by the wave, while the great ocean of truth from sky to sky stretches before him, boundless, unexplored. Where there is a devotion to truth, men are humble. Where there's a devotion to truth, Men come to love nature. Where there is a devotion to truth, men come to love their fellow men. I think it is good because it works. It makes a better world. And whatever the truth, whatever these people may be devoted to is of little importance to me, fundamentally. It is that their devotion to what they believe to be true 
produces sincerity, humility, love of nature, and love of their fellow man. So may we, may all of us, seek the truth. May we be sincere, may we be humble, may we love nature, may we love one another, and may we make a better world. May it be so, may we make it so, and amen.